I hope that your heart will be stirred this morning to make a difference in the harvest that we're going to see here. You see, when we begin to see people as Jesus saw people, and we begin to see his authority and recognize who he really is, it makes all the difference in the world. When we see people as Jesus see people, it causes us to take responsibility. It causes us to pray, and it causes us to go and to tell others about Jesus. So our objective this morning for the few minutes that we have is to see and understand the authority of Jesus. To see and understand the authority of Jesus and to not stop there. To not just see it and understand what it is, but to respond to that. Because we're going to see that the authority of Jesus demands a response of our lives. We don't just sit idle with the gospel keeping the gospel warm in our pockets. That's not what we're called to do. So we're going to see the authority of Jesus, understand the authority of Jesus, and respond to the authority of Jesus. So let me pray for us, and we will get right into our text. Father God, we're thankful for who you are. Thank you for your word that is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Pray for these moments that we have that I will get out of the way of your word. You'll speak through me, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing we see in this first section we see about Jesus is that he has authority over sin. He has authority over sin. Here in the first few verses of Matthew chapter 9, we see a man who gets more than he bargained for. Look at verse 1. So Jesus, so he, Jesus, got into a boat, he crossed over, and he came to his own town. Just then, some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a stretcher. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Have courage, son, your sons are forgiven. So we see that he is paralyzed, and his friends begin to take him, take him to Jesus in their own faith. They understand that Jesus can save. This text doesn't come out and say it explicitly, but we can, we can kind of guess that they took this man to Jesus to save him physically. To save him so he can get up and walk. In verse 2, we see that Jesus goes right to the root of the problem, and he says, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Imagine what this young man was thinking. He was like, no, I was hoping that I could walk again. But your sins are forgiven. Jesus here is exercising his authority over sin and showing the world that he is Savior over all things. A lot of people in the first century would equate this man's disability to sin in either his life or his parents' life. John chapter 9, we get a picture of a crowd that's convinced that a man's blindness is because of the sin that was committed in his life. The Bible certainly does point out that there is penalty for our sin. There is consequence for our sin. But we don't know if in this story that if this man is paralyzed due to the sin in his life or, or to others. But it's clear here that all suffering in this world is caused by sin in the world. That all the suffering that we deal with is caused because there's sin, because we live in a fallen world. And the root of all evil is always sin. And Jesus gets right to the point here with this man. Jesus severed the root of the issue. He didn't just uh, heal him physically, he healed him spiritually. 
Jesus' approach here teaches us that the ultimate need of our life is never physical and it's always spiritual. This holds true to no matter what type of suffering we're walking through. If we're walking through something that, of, of a suffering that we are experiencing, if it's because of a result of our own spiritual suffering or disobedience to God, the result is spiritual. If we're suffering because we're living in a fallen world, the result and the cure is always spiritual. So no matter what type of, of, of uh, illness or sickness that we're dealing with, whether spiritual or physical, the result and the cure is always Jesus. Like Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he said that the Lord's grace has to be sufficient in all suffering, in everything that we do, not just when we feel like it, but the Lord's grace has to be sufficient in our life. Look at verse 3. This act of forgiving sins infuriated the scribes. At this, some of the scribes said to themselves, he's blaspheming. They see what, what they were understanding was that only God could forgive sins. And here is Jesus walking around forgiving sins. So looking at this, we see that Jesus is claiming that he's God. In other words, the king is here, and they don't see that. It gets pretty cool here in verse 4. Some of the, or in verse 3, it says, some of the scribes said to themselves. In other translations, it says that they thought to themselves. So they're thinking these things about Jesus, and Jesus says, perceiving their thoughts, knowing what they are thinking, he responds to them. How crazy is that? Right? There may be some of you today that are like, I wonder how long Matt's going to preach for. And then if I just came out and said, we have 27 and a half more minutes. Like, that's crazy. These men thought to themselves. Jesus responds to them. What does he say? He didn't come to serve, but to be served. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. Perceiving their thoughts, why are you thinking evil things in your heart? For which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk? Obviously, it's easy to say that your sins are forgiven because anybody can say that. Obviously, it's a little bit different when the king of the world says it. But anybody can say that, and Jesus knew that. So he says, here's both options. I'm going to do both. I'm not getting around this. I'm showing you my authority. So he says in verse 5, which is easier? Verse 6, But so that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he told the paralytic, Get up, take your stretcher and go home. So he got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and gave glory to God. So Jesus has the authority over sin. He gets to the root of all suffering, of all pain, and he heals it. He not only heals this man spiritually, but he heals him physically as well. That he, show, he shows up to the religious leaders, the scribes, and he says, which one's easier? I'm going to do both. But first I'm going to heal this man spiritually because that's what's most important here. 
So he has authority over sin. Secondly, he also has the authority to save. The authority to save. We see this in verses 9 through 13 that that, uh, Earl read for us. Matthew recounts here his own call to Jesus, to discipleship. Previous eight verses, we read that Jesus revealed his authority over sin, and now he's showing it that he has the authority to save. He's showing that to Matthew. Matthew, also called Levi in uh, the other Gospels, he was a tax collector. He was not well-liked. The tax collectors took um, the taxes from the people and, and took a little bit extra so they could pocket their change. They were not high esteemed in the culture. They took advantage of people. However, Jesus goes straight to him. This call of Matthew is a great example that Jesus pursues sinners. Just like you and just like me. And in verse 9, he gives him the weighty call of discipleship by saying, follow me. The same call he gave to Peter. The same call he gave to all the other disciples. He says, follow me. Now here, Matthew has a pretty interesting dilemma. He can say, of course, I'll follow you. But if he says no, he keeps his money, keeps his job, he's living a life of luxury. So by saying yes to following Jesus, he's taking a significant pay cut. He's living a life, uh, a completely different life if he follows Jesus. And we see his response at the end of verse 9, that he got up and he followed him. He took the decision, put it in his own hands, and he said, yes, Lord, I'm going to follow you. I know my life will be completely different. I know everything that I've done has gone away. And he got up and he followed Jesus. This is a call for all of our lives that we rid ourselves of this casual discipleship model that we've created that's simply not biblical. This call to follow Jesus and, uh, and be a disciple is radical and it's uncomfortable and it's hard work. We're all guilty of creating and residing in a comfortable when it's easy for me model that's simply not biblical. May this be a help for all of us to leave behind this casual discipleship model and follow Jesus with no strings attached and pick up people on the way and say, I don't have this thing figured out, but you're coming with me. Let's do this together. So may we rid our lives of this casual discipleship model and follow Jesus. Shortly after Matthew got up and followed him, they go to his house and and Jesus eats with the sinners. The word sinner here has two meanings. One is like an ordinary person because we're all sinners, except Jesus. The other one is like this grievous sinner, like the worst of the worst. And that's the the word that Matthew uses here. The worst of the worst are here to eat. Verse 11, the Pharisees saw this, and they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and the sinners? Why is Jesus eating with the tax collector and the worst of the worst? Now we should notice here that the Pharisees have missed the gospel right here. 
Why does your teacher, why did they call him teacher? Because that's all they understood him as. As an earthly person who taught things. They didn't see him as the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of David. They saw him as a teacher. And that's all they saw him as. He didn't come to serve, but he didn't come to be served, but to serve. See, Jesus has come to earth to dwell with us. He pursued the sinners. He didn't run away with them and eat with the high authorities. And when he heard this, verse 12, it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. That's what Jesus goes after. He tells the Pharisees, go and learn what this means. That I require, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I didn't come to call the righteous, but the sinners. And that's great news for us. Because I know I'm not even close to righteous. And Jesus pursues me, and he pursues you. And he has the authority over sin, and he has the authority to save We move on in verse 14, a question about fasting. The scribes ask why, why the disciples aren't fasting. Fasting was a sign of, of mourning and sadness in the Old Testament. And God uses this, uh, God uses in the Old Testament that he is the groom coming for his bride. So he begins to use this illustration in this following section in 14 through 17. Jesus said to them in verse 15, can the wedding guest be sad while the groom is with them? Jesus is saying that I am here. I am the groom with my church. Why would you mourn and be sad at a wedding feast when the groom is there? Jesus says, he carries on and he says that there's going to be a time to be sad and to fast, but now's not the time because I'm here, I'm here with you. I'm going to leave for a little while, but I'm coming back for my bride. There'll be a time of fasting, but Jesus says that it's not yet. So Jesus has authority over sin. He has authority to save. We also see that Jesus has the authority over death and over disease. This authority just keeps getting better and better as we progress through the chapter. Not only does Jesus have the authority over sin and has the authority over, or the authority to save, but he has the authority over death. Look at verse 18. As he was telling them these things, suddenly one of the leaders came and knelt down before him, saying, My daughter just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. We're introduced to this ruler who had just lost his daughter. Completely heartbroken, we, we see the faith that he had in Jesus and he understands his authority, that he can bring his daughter back. Jesus agrees. They begin to walk to this house, walk to his house to save his daughter. And he feels somebody touch his robe. And that's when we get introduced to another lady been ill for 12 years 12 long years and Matthew lets us into what she was thinking verse 21 if I can touch his robe I'll be made well 
Jesus' authority is comforting because he gives us hope in the midst of despair. Just picture this lady, ill and bleeding for 12 years. She lived with this health problem and no one had been able to help her. Gospel of of John, we see this picture of her that she gave everything she had, all the money in the world to every doctor, to every physician to try to help her. She gave everything away and nobody could solve her issue. She understands the authority of Jesus that he has power over death and over disease. And if I can only get a piece of his robe, I'll be made well. To add an insult to injury, this was not just a physical problem for her. It was also a spiritual problem. According to the Jewish law, this lady was uh, was unclean. So she was not allowed to go to the temple and participate in Jewish religious life. It's all but certain that she couldn't have a social life since people couldn't touch her for fear that they would have what she had. So it isn't just physical, it's spiritual. She had no relationship. She didn't have any money. She didn't have anybody else. Yet yet she believed that she could be made well, that she would be made well, if only she could touch Jesus' garment. And she does that. Verse 22. Jesus turned and saw her. Have courage, daughter. Your faith has saved you. And the woman was made well from that moment. As soon as she touched Jesus' robe, she was made well. He said, have courage, daughter. After this healing, we then see uh, Jesus' humble authority over death. And he goes to this man's house as the funeral is going on. And what does he say? He's like, stop the funeral. This girl's not dead. She's just sleeping. Look at their response in verse 26, or in verse 25, verse 24, excuse me. Jesus said, leave, because the girl is not dead, but she's asleep, and they laughed at him. Jesus is getting ready to exercise his authority over death. He's like, this girl isn't dead, but she's asleep. And they laugh at him, and they get him, uh, he gets everybody out of the house. Crowd had been put aside. He went in and he took her by the hand and the girl got up. He has authority over death. Jesus not only brings hope in the midst of despair, but he also brings hope in the midst of death. He brings life in the midst of death. The one who has authority over disease and natural disasters and demons and the one who is to, to sever the root of all suffering and all pain in this world. He has authority over sin and he has authority over death itself. This authority will ultimately be shown when Jesus dies on the cross. For you and for me, we must make no mistake that Jesus really did die on the cross. His heartbeat flatlined for three days before he walked out of the tomb on his own authority. Death does not have the final word, but Jesus does. That's why Paul can say, to live is Christ and to die is gain, because I know that death doesn't have the final word, but Jesus does. 
He then goes on to another healing of, of two blind men who come to Jesus according to their faith. Verse 27, and Jesus went on from there. Two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. According to their faith, they realize that Jesus can heal them. There's no question that these two blind men realize who Jesus is. Isaiah 33, 5 has, has promised that with the coming Messiah, that the eyes of the blind will be made open. And it's pretty clear that these young men knew that. And there was great hope that Jesus was here. There's something important here that we need to realize. That notice that even though these men were blind, that they were able to see what all the Pharisees, what all the Sadducees, what all the scribes, what all the teachers of the law were unable to see. That Jesus has authority. That Jesus has come for sinners like me and like you. May God give us eyes to see him as well for who he really is. Verse 29, we see that he touched their eyes, saying, let it be done for you according to your faith. We have to take a step of faith. Verse 30, their eyes were opened. Jesus has authority over sin. He has come to sever the root of all uh, suffering, of all pain. He has authority to save. He calls the worst of the worst. He calls the sinners. He calls the tax collectors to recline at the table with him. He has authority over death and over disease. Verses 32 through 34, we see a story of a demon-oppressed man. We're not going to get into that this morning, for uh, one, for the sake of time, but also we see Jesus' response in chapter 12. So how does he respond to these Pharisees that say, you know what, maybe since you're healing demons, maybe you're demon-possessed. Jesus responds in chapter 12, so we'll talk about that here in a few weeks. So seeing the authority of Jesus, that he has authority of every aspect of our life, the question arises, how do we respond? How do we rightfully respond to the authority of Jesus? For the last two chapters, in, in chapters 8 and 9, we see that Jesus has authority over sin to save and over death and disease. We've looked at the truly encouraging news of Jesus' authority through his teaching and his preaching and in his healing. It would be a mistake to conclude that this good news is meant solely for us. The reality is that there's a world around us suffering amid sin and trials of various kinds. This world needs to hear the good news of the kingdom. They need to know that Jesus has authority over their sin and over their sickness and their cancer and their disease, their natural disasters, and even over death itself. They must hear the gospel in order to be saved. And Jesus is going to describe here in the next few verses what we need to do when we recognize his authority. It's our responsibility to spread the good news. We can't keep the gospel warm in our pocket for us so we can use it when we feel like it, when we can use it when life goes well. 
The good news is for everyone you work with and everyone you live around. It's for your neighborhood. It's for your unreached people groups around the world. We don't just live to celebrate the good news. We live to spread this good news. We can't just celebrate it. We must do something about it. This kind of risk-taking discipleship that Jesus talks about will not be a reality in our lives until we see the lost as Jesus sees them. So in verses 35 through 38, Jesus begins to explain the harvest. So there's three quick things that we need to see in this last section of Scripture to see how we need to respond. First, in verse 36, we see the size of the crowd. We see the size of the crowd. Jesus continued going on, verse 35, around to all the towns and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and every sickness. First part of 36, when he saw the crowds... It's estimated that Jesus was looking over these towns and over these villages, and there could have been up to three million people that he was looking at. It's a bunch of people. We look out in our world today and we see people. We see lots of people. We see lost people. We can't just see them on the outside. We have to see their spiritual condition as well. Jesus saw the crowds and had agony over them. But secondly, we have to have compassion for the crowds as Jesus did. We not only see their size, but we also need to feel their suffering. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed, dejected, like like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus describes this crowd as weary and worn out like sheep that are wandering without their leader, without a shepherd. They are running after the pleasures and the pursuits, the people in this world, thinking that they could be uh, satisfied apart from God. But they can't. Does that remind you of our world a little bit? People pursuing the passions and the pleasures, the people in this world trying to, to build their platform separated from God, trying to fill the desires of this world, and they couldn't do it. Every road to satisfaction that this world offers, the road to success and to money, relationships, or pleasures, it's ultimately empty. And Jesus knew that. These crowds desperately needed the merciful shepherd to step in. And it's hard to see people as Jesus sees people unless we look at the crowd we see the size of the crowd. That there, it's not just one or two people in our city that are lost. It's a great multitude, and we have to have compassion on them, knowing that they are lost, that they're like sheep without a shepherd. So we see the size of the crowd. We have compassion over the crowd, knowing that they are distressed. And ultimately, and thirdly, we, we look at the crowd, we need to realize that they're separated from God. Look at verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. In light of God's coming judgment, Jesus knew the desperate condition of those that he ministered to. It wasn't just an occupation to keep him busy during the day. He knew their spiritual condition. 
And that these people who are separated from God and who, if nothing changed, they would one day stand in front of God at the judgment seat and be content, co- condemned to eternal darkness. And this is why Jesus had compassion on them. How much more so should it be true in our day? That we see the size of the crowd, we have compassion on them, and we know and realize their separation. We live in a world of approximately 7 billion people. It's just over that. It's like 7.1 billion people. And with most estimates labeling about one-third of these 7 billion people as Christians. And that's kind of a liberal uh, view. So you can remove some of those because in, in America, let's be really honest, sometimes we forget what it means to be Christian. Sometimes we just take this idea of Christian because I believe that there's something out there. Right? I'm not an atheist, so I don't believe that there's nothing out there. So that makes me Christian. So we'll take that they're, they're one-third of the seven billion. That leaves 4.5 billion people without Christ. That's 4.5 billion people on the road that leads to eternal darkness. That is the condition of the lost. And we must ask ourselves if we realize the gravity of eternity... It's hard to wrap our heads around that. And I don't think you can wrap your head around that. The the gravity of eternity, that it's far more important than the sports and the money, than the success in the world, that there are people around us today and every day who are eternally lost. Do we sense that urgency in our lives and our churches? Do we see the world with the eyes of Jesus? That we don't have time to waste our lives on the pursuits and the pleasures and the possessions of this world when there's something infinitely more important for us to do. That there's a dying world that needs Jesus. What is more important than this world, than the world that the world has to offer? The answer is the commission of Jesus. Verse 38, Therefore, Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. So how do we respond today to the call of Jesus? Jesus says here that the harvest is plentiful and there are a lot of people who don't know him yet. But there's, a few, there's only a few people that will go. The harvest is ripe. There's people everywhere. Yet these people that that call me mine won't go. The harvest is plentiful, yet the workers are few. So how do we respond? Well, it's different for each of us. We go into our workplaces. We go into our schools. Wherever we go, we have to be on mission for Christ and see people as Jesus does. When we rightfully respond to, our th- to the authority of Jesus, we go and tell others about that. We have to. For some of us, maybe it's a radical call to, to abandon what we have here and go overseas and serve. How is Jesus calling you to respond today? It may be scary, it may be intimidating, but it's worth it. I ran from my call for a long time. A long time. 
and it's scary, and, but Jesus equips us. Jesus calls us and he equips us and he uses us. And I pray that God opens up our eyes to see how we need to respond and that we'll take action, that we'll see the harvest and we won't just see it, but we'll respond to it and we'll be the ones that go. I say it every time, but Jesus will one day meet Jesus face to face. We're going to stand at the judgment seat and he's going to say, Matthew, the harvest was abundant. Few went, and you weren't one of them. May that, not be, may that not be true in all of our lives. May we be people that go, however that is, whether that's to Honduras on our mission trip, whether that's uh, living as a missionary in our workplaces, whatever that means, I pray that we will respond. Maybe for the first time today, you've realized that you've never accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. That you've never understood the authority of Jesus until today. That He has come to save the worst of the worst. That no matter what you have done, it can't separate you from the love of Jesus. During our response time, during communion, I'm going to be in the back. If that's you today, please come talk to me. Come talk to Pastor Seth. Come talk to one of the elders. Don't leave today without responding to what God is calling you to do. Let's pray.